From the Upper Mount Samiesville Studios in Samiesville, Pennsylvania, comes the We Talk Games interview. Welcome to Interview Starcade, the special interview sections ripped out of the monthly We Talk Games Video Power Audio Magazine at WeTalkGames.com. I am your host, Wiggly. Joining me on the line, our producer, according to Walter Day, who who's going to argue with the biggest referee in video games, Kyle Von Kubik. Hey, everybody. Another stacked interview coming your way. Pinball! Let's yes. You, we love pinball. We do love pinball, and this was our first foray into the whole pinball scene. We had someone on that was responsible for one of my favorite pinball tables of all time, that being Monster Bash, which... Uh, I got to tell you, anyone that plays that game becomes addicted to it. It's so much fun, so much going on, so much humor, um, very easy to understand your objectives, and just awesome to make the monsters come to life. And rock and roll happens. I don't know a single video game podcast that has dedicated as much time to pinball as We Talk Games has. We had and, a lot of big names. We've had uh, George Gomez. Uh, huge names. Huge yeah. names. Steve Ritchie, George Gomez, and of course a person responsible for the legalization of pinball uh, back in the 70s, Roger Sharp. Yeah. Now, we're going to start off with George Gomez because this was the man who kicked off a trailblazing pinball and, and bringing it back to light. He is on the documentary that we've talked about a lot on the We Talk Games podcast, Tilt. If you're new to the podcast, a new listener We Talk Games, definitely check out Tilt, the Battle to Save Pinball documentary. You can get it on iTunes, you can get it on DVD for a song, and it's definitely worth checking out. And George Gomez, who's on the documentary, joined us to talk about his extensive history in pinball. Hey, and let's not forget the fact that we quite frequently have Greg Maletic on, and he's the guy that was responsible for creating Tilt, the Battle to Save Pinball. Yeah, he's the director of that documentary. So it's a lovely web that we have between video games and pinball. And now I think we'll see even more video games and pinball interaction with the release of Global VR's Ultra Pin Pinball Machine. Hopefully we'll see some of these machines popping up in local arcades or bars and things like this. At four grand to be able to have 15, 16 of the most acclaimed tables on one virtually simulated full-size pinball table. That's completely amazing. That's economics. It's the future of pinball, we hope. Speaking of webs and webs of intrigue, how about the fact that this is the episode that really started to kick off how George Lucas killed pinball? (laughs) Indeed. Hey, let's not waste any more time. George Gomez on We Talk Games. And now the moment I know I've been waiting for. We got him in the queue. Let me press the button. Let him get him on. George Gomez. Oh, my gosh. Here we go. Yes, sir. George Gomez, the innovator, the man that single-handedly uh, tried to save pinball. But unfortunately, George Lucas killed it for us. <laughs> now, I guess you, I guess you had, uh, it was more, it was you, you Pat Lawler, and, uh, both came up with Pinball yeah, 2000. It's, a, it's, it's far from, you know, it's far from single-handed. Sure. Um, there were uh, a lot of people in the Williams Engineering Group that gave it a shot. I think collectively all those people deserve as much credit as, as we typically get. Sure. But the force was just too much. George Lucas killed pinball yeah. in the United States of America. Well, I don't know if it was George so much, but I think that license that you're referring to, which um, which was essentially the second game in the series, yeah. 
kind of didn't live up to expectations. Now, and so. I, I know we're getting ahead of ourselves, but, uh, you know, a lot of our listeners, they're, they're quite in the know. Uh, of course, Kyle and I, we both really love the, the movie Tilt. Right, the battle to save pinball. That's yeah. it, battle. The battle to save pinball, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, great movie. What a compelling story. I mean, it doesn't have the make-out factor of, like, uh, uh, King of Kong, but f- as far as passion goes, I don't think there's been a- any other movie on, you know, our passion that is, is as uh, compelling, I think, as, as uh, that movie was. It's definitely a great movie. And this is something that really didn't penetrate the market, obviously, um, right. to, to even, you know, a lot of uh, gamers that were in the know. A lot of people don't know about Pinball 2000. Yeah. Well, the product, you know, I mean, Pinball as a whole, you got to remember the reason we were trying to save it is because there wasn't so much of it out there. Mm. And the environment in which Pinball has operated in, the traditional environment that it operated in at the time, was changing and shrinking. That's still the case today. The success of, or I should say maybe the survival of Pinball in the last six or seven years has been inside of a new market that's been very affected by the economy. I I don't know if people are aware of this, but when Williams went out of business, a lot of the traditional business of pinball went with it. And, um, And Stern Pinball, in order to survive, had to break into new markets. And that one of those new markets was a home. You know, a lot of people were putting pinball machines in their homes. Sure. Of course, it was a time when um, explosive economic growth in this country was leading to, you know, everybody's building a house and putting a rec room in that house. And if you're doing that, a little Americana, you know, the the jukebox machine, the pool table, and the pinball machine, maybe an upright video game were all a great fit into your rec room. Oh, yeah. That's really what drove the market in the last few years with... With the economy tanking the way it did, and, and those rec rooms not being built anymore, uh, it's it's affected pinball dramatically. Also, sure. um, pinball has always managed to figure it out somehow. I think right now there's you know there's new things being thought about that hopefully will keep it alive. As I looked more and more into uh, your history, I mean, it, it, it's pretty amazing. I think that you are responsible for some of my favorite titles, uh, or at least had a hand in them in, in some way. And I really think that you have, because of, of how you got into it and how you approached uh, video games, pinball machines, and things like this, I think you've really probably have the largest collection of non-mameable video games and experiences i think that of pretty much any developer uh you started back in the 70s right late um, 70s october of 1978 i walked in the door at uh, midway games and and it's amazing the the naivety that you brought with you i think really propelled you and and i mean i think there's two ways that you could probably become very very successful or prolific one is to be naive about things and the other is to be a total you know douchebag uh type of person and i think you know it's that it's that naivety not knowing let's, oh i can't hope, go <laughs> yeah let's hope i'm not the latter <laughs> right, right. I, we, we may have had some people on the show that were but i, I don't think you are that's for sure because uh, you came in there thinking i want to design the whole the whole machine i want to do the marquee art yeah. I want to it's, do everything. It's, um, it, you're right. You're right. I think that that uh, a combination of factors sort of kind of propelled me in that direction. One, for sure, you know, when you're 22, you don't know a lot. And yet, you know, you're not aware that you don't know a lot. Sure. So you don't even know what you don't know. And at school, their job is to basically tell you that you can conquer the world yeah. and to try to prepare you to to do that. And so those guys did a really good job of convincing me that I could design anything. I really didn't know that I, you know, how much I didn't know when I, when I walked in the door at Midway Games, but, you know, they gave me a shot, and I put a lot of energy into it, the kind of energy that 22-year-old kid brings to the table. Sure. I think my passion for the product that drove me into the business, that's not unique. You know, that's like, I've seen that so many times. The guys that I met later on in my life that mentored me in, in, in the business, mm-hmm. those guys, they came into it with equal naivete and equal passion, uh, maybe less training or maybe training in a different area, but guys like Steve Ritchie that certainly made an impact on my pinball design skills in, in terms of his mentorship, 
is a guy that got into it with an equal amount of passion and an equal amount of naivete. That part of it's not unique. I was employed at Midway as recently as uh, December of 08, and there were kids coming in the door every day that brought that passion for the product to the task of designing video games, and they were equally ignorant about the the myriad problems and situations and how much they didn't know, but yet it didn't matter. They, you know, every day they came to work and every day they, they put their heart and soul into what they were doing. And some of those guys eventually are going to be the guys that you're interviewing 10 years from now, sure. 15 years from now. Right on, right on. Cool. Let's uh, jump around a little bit here. Let's talk about pins a bit. I have a lot of favorite pins. Uh, eight ball, probably because of the Fonzie pinky on there. Xenon, of course, from Bally. Attack from Mars. I like the original one. I, of course, mm-hmm. I, you must have had a passion for that as well. But then I, I find out that you were on the team for Monster Bash, which yeah. has definitely got to be one of the most fun pins there is. It's my favorite amongst the products that I've designed. Batman's a second is a second favorite, and, and I just did that, um, okay. you know, last year. I wish Batman had. I wish we had had more time because designing games in the modern era doesn't provide for the the long development cycles mm. that were the norm at um, at Williams Electronics, you know, and so. I'm sitting here staring at my Monster Bash right now because it's in my living room. And, um, you know, I just had people up here yesterday playing this thing. And then, you know, they look at the, the row of pinball machines. And I always direct people to the Monster Bash because it's, it's, it's really the kind of machine in which you manage to entertain people immediately. It's very playable instantly, and there's a lot of feedback happening, and people are having a good time right away. There's not a lot of struggling to get to the point where you're having a good time. Great games also allow for the game to go beyond that and to continue to challenge you as you play into it, and Monster Bash does that. Um, Lord of the Rings does that. Monster Bash does that. Revenge from Mars certainly does it. Revenge from Mars brings a wealth of elements to the table. It does it differently than, than traditional pins, but and that's I think what's, it accomplishes the same thing. Yeah, and what a different world we probably live in if a Monster Bash would have replaced the Star Wars Episode One as the, the second Pinball 2000, because Pinball 2000, really, that allowed you to fully realize the narrative of the pinball table. There's been a lot of stuff said about the storytelling and, and the character, the persona of a pinball machine, you know, the, the Black Knight basically mm. um, challenging you for your money and, uh, and that kind of thing that, that sort of Steve ha- uh, kind of kicked off many, many years later had evolved into a lot more storytelling. And, and Pinball 2000 was in some ways a natural progression. It was the merger of two mediums, one of which to this day is um, every day video games are being made where the storytelling is more and more uh, an element. You know, my generation was very happy with passive entertainment. We, we read books and watched movies and watched TV. Generations sense us, obviously I have a foot in both, but the generations sense us, you know, they want to affect the outcome of the story. The guys that I was designing video games for, it's not enough that I would entertain them with the mechanics of play. They wanted the story to progress. They wanted to be told the story. They wanted to be an interactive book. It was a story that they could affect the ending of. And so what Pinball 2000 allowed us to do is it allowed us to take this inherently fun play mechanic that is, is just the simplest part of a pinball machine, which is, you know, stay alive by keeping the ball in play. Mm-hmm. The number one core basic rule of pinball. Don't drain. And, and, and then it allowed us to weave in all this other stuff to kind of evolve on the basic premise. Yeah, gone were the were the rubber up and downer guy. I don't know. I don't know all the technical terms for yeah. every element of a pinball machine. But gone was that, and in its place was whatever the most powerful beyond what video game graphics were at that time. You could reflect down onto the actual pinball field the best that silicon graphics could deal in in uh, the late nineties, uh, early two thousand. Yeah, I gotta tell. I mean, I gotta tell you that that was a talented crew. I mm. mean, really, it's um, my job was strictly. Vision, vision and leadership. I think that's what you can hang on me, but there was hundreds of creative guys mm. 
supporting my effort, and their ideas are all over the product. I you know, see. they, they, you know, um, you know. I mean, an artist would come to us and say something about some concept. You know, Scott Slomiani said, let's spoof fighting games with um, right. a giant Lincoln robot that's fighting an alien. And when we, you know, hit the targets, they'll fight. And just stuff like that was coming from everywhere. It was coming from all the guys in the department were making a contribution because people were excited about the premise, the promise of what it was. Mm. And uh, the ability for the thing to do so many different cool things. Yeah, it's, it's right. really wide open. Yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned generations and the generation and then this generation and spanning those generations because I, I do that as well. I grew up in the 70s, uh, couldn't wait for the summer to come to drive down to Knoebels Grove and, and go into the arcade there where we had a lot of the mechanical games. You know, the, the, you'd yep. shoot against a, a real six-foot mannequin. That was a game. Yep. You shoot against him. Uh, there were bubble games with the two boxers inside of a bubble. Sure. Um, and then a game that I love to play when I when I first saw it back in in the arcades I was getting a little bit older at this time but in 78 you actually designed the spear gun for Blue Shark yeah. which I knew immediately yeah. and I remember playing Blue Shark the first time because I was like wait a minute this isn't the game that I played when I was <laughs> younger where like I saw like a shark going around in red blood and everything what's going yeah, on I have, here? I have to tell you my contribution was pretty small there but okay. um, I mean I I walked in the door and um it was the first project that I was handed. It was an exciting time because the big industry trade show was in the fall mm. every year, the AMOA show, and it was in Chicago. And I, I had no idea what, I was, what was in store for me. AMOA shows always happen in the fall, and for the fall, always a really nice time here in the city with just kind of the beautiful, crisp days and, and just the changing of the weather is interesting. And I always associate fall with those AMOA shows from my, my early time in, in the game business. And I, I walked in the midway. I did not know what insanity I just parachuted into. Uh, they were preparing for an AMOA show. So there was uh, the engineering department was turned upside down, scrambling to get all these products ready to demonstrate at the, sh at the trade show. And I was a kid, didn't really know much of anything, obviously, but I had a lot of ideas and things, and they didn't even know what to do with me. They, they literally, they put me in the mechanical engineering department just because they'd never really had a guy with, with kind of my skill set there. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, well, he draws and he makes things, and, you know, that's kind of what those guys do. And, and so, um, <laughs> you know, they sort of threw me in there, and I was handed this, uh, it was actually a Taito game. Blue Shark was actually, you know, designed by some guy in Japan at Taito. Mm -hmm. It was really simple, black and white fish swimming around, and, you, you know, you tried to shoot the fish. And the game needed a gun mechanism, that a video gun game is what it really was. Mm -hmm. And they just wanted somebody to style the spear gun, you know, which is... Which is sort of the task that fell to me, and yeah, well, my boss was a really good guy named Al Ryan. He was really pivotal in terms of my education. Mm. I quickly figured out that you know you could have great sketches and great drawings and stuff, but the guys in engineering, if they didn't like you or they didn't like what you were doing, they could easily poke holes in them, and because they knew how to make stuff and and you didn't. So what happened is I quickly figured out that I had to be able to defend my stuff. So when I had an idea, I couldn't just draw the thing. I had to tell them, okay, you know what? It's going to be a fan casting, and we're going to make it this way, and then we're going to machine this, uh -huh. and we're going to add this here, and et cetera, or whatever it's going to be. It's going to be an injection molded part, and we're going to make it out of ABS, and, and here's how we're going to do it. And, and you, had to t you kind of had to take it that way. Otherwise, somebody was going to tell you no. Yeah. You know, they were just going to say, no, I can't do that. You know, can't right. do that. And, right. and if you didn't know any better, you basically just had to go back to your corner and draw some more. And, and you know, nothing would ever happen. So, but um, this guy who was my boss was pretty good about sending me around. So, like, the gun for Blue Shark was a, a sand casting, an aluminum sand casting. So, he literally he called the guy who ran the foundry in this horrible industrial area in, in the bowels of the city of Chicago. And he said, I'm sending you this kid. Um, give him a tour. <laughs> and so this guy bought me a hamburger and, and walked me through this foundry, and I got to see how aluminum sand castings were made so that when I went back into the studio, I could, you know, I, now I know what I'm talking about. Exactly, and, sure. and so And he did that repeatedly. 
um, throughout my early career, and that really made a lot of difference. Uh, and eventually, I, I ran into the same kinds of roadblocks with electrical engineers and software engineers because when I wanted to play in their sandbox, they were very protective of it, and they would just make it basically unintelligible or try to make it unintelligible so that you, could, you, know, you, couldn't, you couldn't understand what could or couldn't be done. You know, eventually I had to go learn something about that stuff in order to be able to communicate with them and, and convince them that, yes, we could do this or, or, or no, we couldn't. My real breakthroughs in that, in that arena happened because the group of guys that I was working with at the time, there were a lot of us that were frustrated game designers and um, because we were being allowed to make, to evolve somebody else's stuff, but we weren't really being allowed to design our own games. And, and there was a really smart hardware guy, uh, electric, electrical engineer by trade, designing the electronic hardware that, that supported the video games, and a really smart software guy who wanted to, you know, write game code, but, you know, nobody would let him. They, everybody would say, yeah, and then he would show up with a thing that looked like a box moving around on a screen and everybody would go, what's that? And he'd say, oh, it's a tank, can't you right. imagine? And they would go like, yeah, not so much. <laughs> and so so the magic was when the three of us got together and I could make the tank look like a tank, he could make the tank move, and when we needed more horsepower to do the thing that we were trying to do, the hardware guy could jump in and, and spin us up a board that did what we wanted. So that's how we got to do what we did. It wasn't kind of in our day-to-day jobs it was just something that out of passion we were you know learning and figuring it out and sure. and trying to make it happen on the side kind well, of thing what and, was the first game that midway that you brought to them and they allowed you to do it and right with the, it? the first game was a game that this guy bill adams that eventually rose to run the um the software group and he's the guy that was the key architect of the Tron software, you know, many years later. Mm. He had a game idea for a game. Uh, he didn't have a name. He didn't really have characters. He, he was very interested in creating a very evil boss. And so, you know, one day he came in and he said, let's make it Satan. And so, uh. you know, he, and so the game was Satan's Hollow. And okay. so, you know, I drew the bird patterns. And, and Atish, the, the hardware designer, had designed this hardware set that nobody was using because the company's R&D groups had their own proprietary hardware, Dave Nutting and Associates in mm. Arlington Heights and um, Arcade Engineering down in um, Fort Lauderdale. You know, they, they stuck to their own stuff. So Atish was just a young guy right out of IIT that was basically a electrical engineer design, trying to design hardware and, and looking at what other people were doing. The Williams products were big RAM-based systems. They were an Intel house, and we were a Zilog house. And so, you know, he just kind of went through um, and did what he could with uh, a Z80 and, uh, mm. and came up with a thing called the Midway Card Rack 2, which is the hardware set that, that powered most of the, the games that we went to build. And the, first, the very first game to use that hardware set to go out the door and actually be mass produced was State & Hollow. Oh, very good. Great. That was a 2 megahertz processor, I think. Yeah, it was uh, not not not. uh, There there wasn't a lot there. You know, it's like you can you could uh, you could do a bang up job with a cell phone nowadays. (laughs) Yeah, and it's it's amazing, especially like even the backdrops. I think of Satan's Hollows were very nice. I love the background and the the mood that that inspired. Yeah, the nature. You know, the nature of his hardware set was that um, there were basically two graphics planes, and and the 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 front plane. Um, had this bazillion moving objects uh, capability, and the back plane was intended to be a static plane that you would basically create backdrops and static art on. And um, it was half the resolution of the foreground plane, um, which wasn't saying much. It was, I think, 16 by 16 pixel sprites, and the foreground was twice that. I've told the story many times that he used to come to see me, and he'd say things like, this new hardware set is going to have 4,096 colors. And uh, the only thing that makes Johnny Carson's face look like Johnny Carson on TV is the fact that there's all those colors available. Yeah, yeah. And then he'd say to me, you can use 32. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, every reminds say, me. What? Of, you know, what are you talking? I got four thousand ninety-six callers. I can pick any sixteen. That, that's <laughs> a, that's exactly. That reads like right from the brochure of uh, like the Genesis and the Turbo Graphics when they would say how many colors they could do, and then you know we could only display sixteen on the main character. And yeah, and, that's right. So I mean, that's all like good yeah. Stuff. I, I you know I gave him no ends of uh, grief about it. You know, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> you know, I, I used to tell him, I said, why don't you just Go to the store and br- go buy me the 16-color Crayola box, and I'll see what I can do for you. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and what, what made the transition happen from, from Midway to going into doing pins? So I was at Midway, like, probably uh, seven years um, from the time I graduated, uh, you know, from the time I walked in the door there in October of October 78 to uh, sometime in 84, and the business had tanked. It had pretty much gone away. Part of my job duties, somewhere along the line, there was an external invention company, toy invention company called Marvin Glass and Associates that had decided during the boom in video games that they needed a piece of that action. They were a bunch of creative guys, and they were used to inventing all kinds of toys for the major toy companies. Then they used to approach uh, Bally all the time with pinball features. Mm-hmm. So they thought it was a natural that they should jump into uh, video games. So they um, approached Midway, and um, they had some beautiful storyboards for games. And Midway said, you know, these are just kind of pictures, and you know, they, they really don't tell us that the game is fun. It's a great scene you have here, but if you really want to do this, you're going to have to develop the games just like we do. So mm. they were serious about it, and they decided that they would jump into it. And part of the, their learning curve was that sometimes they would have issues with different things that we did, like how to use this particular tool or, or what does this hardware do and that kind of thing. And I had been sent over there a few times to help out on you know, just this or that. And so I'd gotten to know them, and I was very impressed by uh, the way they worked and the environment. So when, when the business tanked in 84, I, I still had a job in Midway, and I was probably going to be one of the last guys that they let go if, if they ever let me go, because had, they had a lot of respect for me at that particular moment in time. You know, I had a lot of games under my belt and just kind of had done all the things. Can you just, just rattle off a couple of the... Well, by that time, um, you know, we had, from Satan's Hollow, you know, we we got lucky and and we had progressed to Tron. Mm -hmm. And then uh, after Tron, I had Spy Hunter. And in the meantime, I was kind of shepherding a lot of the creative efforts in a lot of different areas. So I had had my fingers in a lot of different pies internally. You know, I did an electromechanical baseball game called Big Bat. Oh yeah, loved it. Um, I, I, yeah. I mentioned it's really uh, hard to play, but you know, I, you know, it's, they were very inconsistent. So some of them played really well, and some of them didn't. And and I, you know, I struggled, but uh, to get it to get it right. So I was kind of all over the map. You know, I was designing cabinets and theme things, and every once in a while jumping on a game, and I was doing fine. But I didn't like. I just. I just had a bad feeling about the way things were going. You know, it was mm-hmm. 84. It was, I mean, it was really dismal. Sure. The company was shrinking fast. There were a lot of layoffs. There really didn't seem to be much of a future for the business. It, it was tanking on all fronts. The coin-operated game side was tanking. The consumer side was tanking. You know, it was just, my friend Lyman would say it was a tank fest. But um, anyway... <laughs> Yeah, it was it was really crappy. So I, I called Marvin Glass and Associates and said, hey, can I get a job as a toy inventor? And they said, well, you come in and interview like everybody else, and, and if you get through the interview, you know, we'll see. So so I interviewed, and they gave me a job, and, and I designed toys for the next five years. And then after I designed toys, uh, they, they the firm broke up, and when the firm broke up, um, I had, sort of had a bad taste in my mouth because I... I really liked that job. Sure. Um, did you have anything to do with Max Steele, the robot, at all? Because I love no, Max. No, uh, I did okay. not. Right. I didn't. Just taking wild stabs at some yeah, of the toys. Yeah, no, they, I, mean, I mean, they had, I, the stuff I did, um, actually, I just put uh, I just put a video the other day up on my Facebook page, because oh. people are always asking me for stuff, of um, these trucks that I did for a company called Galoob, called Crash and Bash. Okay. And okay. The, the TV commercial for them is, is, is up there now. Nothing to do and with then, ricochet um, racers, though. Nope. Oh, okay. Nope. But I, you know, I remember all that stuff. Sure. We were talking about. Yeah, it's yeah. great stuff. 
after glass, I didn't know what I was going to do. Ended up on my own for some time. Eventually uh, hooked up with one of the companies that I was doing a lot of work for, a manufacturing company called Grand Products. It was building a lot of Japanese games. It was the late 80s and, and a lot of that stuff that was coming over from Japan, from Sega and Namco, etc. It was too expensive to ship entire the entire video games, especially no. those huge Sega sit-downs over here. <laughs> so um, Grand would, uh, con- you know, they were a contract manufacturer, and um, but they needed somebody to like kind of redesign the stuff over here. I see. So the only thing we got was software and, and a hardware set, and then somebody had to do all the other stuff. And so I did a lot of that. In the meantime, I was I took on some other projects. I did some work for uh, BattleTech centers and you know just mm. different different projects. I did some consulting stuff in the toy business for friends of mine. Somewhere along the line, I I, I decided I, I need to show game ideas uh, because I was really bored with the production stuff that I was doing. Where you know I'd take a take a Japanese drawing set and you know reinterpret it essentially. Mm-hmm. And so I I really was not having a good time doing that. I kept trying to show ideas and. I remember that during that time, pinball was hot. It was like it had become the go-to thing uh, after the video game crash. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like the video game crash. There were only two things were alive. 8-bit Nintendo was beginning to make its presence yeah. felt, and, um, and then uh, pinball was all of a sudden interesting again. Mm-hmm. And so, so it was the early 90s, and... Uh, pinball was was hot as a pistol, and I was showing. So I looked around and I was, so well, I know all these guys. Um, so I would show product ideas to uh, Williams, and Capcom had come to town. They wanted to build pinball machines, and when they set up, they raided Williams and they took a bunch of designers and a bunch of people. And, uh, headhunters. Um, the guys at Williams always were very polite. They always looked at my stuff. They always said nice things. But the reality was that, you know, as a guy inventing a feature, it was really, really unlikely that a company like Williams Electronics that was a, a designer-driven company was going to take a feature because the designer inside of Williams had his own ideas, wanted sure. to do his own thing. So why would he use my feature? Mm. Um, so... They always looked at the stuff, but they never bought anything. And um, when Capcom came to town, they were designer light. And I had I'd done some novelty stuff. I did some of the development work for Lauren Bromley's Rock and Bowl, and I did uh, I did a uh, helicopter inside of a like the old like the old Whirly Bird. I I, I I remade it into a thing called Hawk Avenger. It was uh, remember it was the first Gulf War, and um, and war themes were were popular at that time and so i did that i did i did a bunch of other kind of novelty things and that had sort of brought me to notice amongst the williams designers so they mentioned when williams williams wanted to be you know they wanted a piece of every every element of the coin operated market every aspect of the coin operated market and they were kind of light on novelties every time they tried they sort of got their asses kicked because Mm. They really weren't that focused on it, and they tried to do it with the sensibilities of pinball, and they really, you know, it, it just wasn't the thing they were good at. So they, they offered me a job um, actually designing novelty games. I was going to be the novelty game guy. I see. I went to work there and started working on a novelty, and I was a designer in the midst of the, the pinball design group there and and the pinball design group there basically ran the company i mean they those guys had so much power for good or for bad they influenced the fortunes of that company directly when i landed up there it was like essentially there were seven design teams and each design team was like a street gang and Mm. uh you know and and you know the little street gangs were allied to big gang bosses you know and there were two two big gang bosses you know pat lawler and um and steve ritchie and you know you kind of saw on one side of the fence or the other i see i see um i parachute in between the bloods and the crypts up there and and i'm thinking oh my god you know what the hell and i'm a novelty game guy you know which is like a you know that's a talk about a bastard stepchild <laughs> so I tried my damnness to get a novelty game to happen there. I couldn't get any model shop time. I couldn't get any resources. You know, it, 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 they wouldn't hire me any people. You know, it was just uh, it was a nightmare. 
And slowly but surely, they started to need pinball because of the, the drought that had been created in terms of production by the Capcom guys stealing design teams. Mm-hmm. And so, so there were holes in the schedule. And um, they, they slowly started shifting me in that direction. And one day they just came in. Ken Sedesna was running engineering at the time, just came in and said, hey, do you think you can do a pinball machine? And, uh, and I was like, yeah, because instantly it would legitimize me inside the, you know, even if I didn't gain respect immediately, at least the product was a legitimate product inside the company. Right. They knew how to, you know, they knew how to design it. They knew how to produce it. They knew how to sell it. The, the reality is the guy goes in there to sell the Williams pinball machine and he opens you know he's talking the salesman's talking to the other salesman and mm-hmm. he opens with the, the Williams pinball machine um, after he gets done talking about the highlight pinball machine he talks about the you know the also ran pinball machine because typically there was a Williams branded game and a Bally branded game after he gets done talking about the second game then he starts talking about the midway video game um, after he gets done talking about the midway video game then he might talk about the service department, and then he might talk up, and then he might give the guy a Williams pen, and then he takes him to lunch. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then on his way out of the bathroom, walking back from the car, he says, oh, yeah, and we've got these novelty games, too. <laughs> so, so I was like, okay, so I, I really don't need to be there. Yeah. I need to be where the action is, and the action was in pinball. So I see. Yeah. I jumped on pinball. Um, you know, I picked a theme that I, I thought of sort of new cars and 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 corvettes and yeah. um uh pat lawler turned out was uh, unbeknownst to me at the time was a fan of corvettes and he had already talked to the licensing department about getting him the license so the very first thing that happened is i went to see roger sharp and i said hey roger i want you to go get me a chevrolet corvette license and and he just kind of laughed at me and i was like what what now <laughs> and he says well you know it's it's reserved for the king i was like it's reserved for the king which king mm. he says well yeah not the not the king the king the other king and i was like <laughs> you know because we used to we used to call steve richie the king uh, gotcha, but, uh, gotcha. so i'm going oh great so lawler's got it reserved so roger you know is like wringing his hands and enjoying this conversation this is going to be interesting. The new guy is going to go sit down with one of the street gang bosses. He's got to go see the Godfather and get permission to make this. This is going to be fun to watch. I, I called on Pat, and, um, and he was very gracious. He said, okay. He said, you know what? It's your first game. It's, it's important that it be something that you are passionate about and that you understand. And I believe that you, you know, those two are true. The only caveat is that I get to do the next one. And I said, sure, no problem. So I was very excited. I went back to see Roger, and Roger was, dis- I think Roger was a little dismayed. He's, wait, wait, let me, are you sure he's going to let you do this? <laughs> and I said, call him, call him. So, you know, I'm sure that, I said, oh, no, I trust you. I'm, I'm sure that as soon as I walked out of Roger's office, he picked up the phone and called Lawler. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so uh, I was off and running. I really good guys worked with me on that. My good friend, uh, Tom Copera, a mechanical engineer by trade, had uh, apprenticed for me at back at Midway. And then they gave me, I lucked out, and they gave me another guy who's uh, over the years become a great friend of mine, uh, Tom Uban, uh, who was going to be the software guy. And so the three of us uh, sort of set off and running. Well, they gave me some date, and I guaranteed them that I was going to make that date. And you know, I made the date, and that was the, the start of pinball. I have to say, I took a little detour with my next game. I wasn't really paying attention to um, the significance of, a the- of the theme. I was a fan of Johnny Mnemonic, the, the fiction, mm-hmm. uh, a fan of William Gibson, the author. They said the movie was coming out. Keanu Reeves, he was on the, he was hot from the Speed movies and um, et cetera, and... Uh, there weren't a lot of licenses in that in that time frame that were like just jumping out at me, but the company was really enamored with the notion of it should be a license. It's got to be a license. Mm-hmm. And Neil McCaster came down to see me one day because he heard that I wanted to do an original theme, and he was like, no. He says, you know, this is going to be Sony Pictures Entertainment backing this movie, and... You know they're going to put twenty-five million dollars in advertising behind it, and we're going to we're going to ride the coattails of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a horrible movie, <laughs> production. It was a crappy decision to uh, 
put Johnny Mnemonic in a pinball machine. But that being said, I, I you know I really like the game. I, I like what we did with it. We just got zero mileage out of the license. Sure. And the other thing was, you know, it's kind of like in the beginning there, I didn't really understand the entertainment of a pinball machine because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't one of those guys that came up playing pinball, dying to make pinball. Mm -hmm. Pinball to me was, it's a super cool toy and I get to make this cool toy and that's what drew me to it. It wasn't a traditional love of the game, like Steve Ritchie, you know, playing pinball machines on the beach in California it drove him to want to make pinball machines. So in my case, it was more like it was a situational you know, thing. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, this company understands and knows how to make pinball machines so that basically this instantly moves me into the majors, and it is a very cool toy. And so I really wanted to make this cool toy. But I, I didn't understand a lot at that particular point in time about the mixture of elements that goes into making a pinball machine. I was kind of, you know, as all designers do, even even guys that come from, like, the passion of the game thing, um, it takes some learning to sure. kind of get in it. And it's not, you know, it's like there there is a component. I was probably way ahead of the curve in terms of understanding the kinetics of the game, understanding the, you know, the elements of flow, mm-hmm. um, understanding, you know, what mechanically I could do on the play field and, and the notion of creating some cool toys. I had already in, you know, in, in Corvette, I, I created two really cool toys, the racetrack and the, and the big engine. In Johnny Mnemonic, that little matrix um, uh, um, tic-tac-toe game at the mm-hmm. top there with the hand and the magnet is really very cool. Yeah. Um, so I had that end of it down. The end that I didn't have down was the the pacing of the game. And so the notion that the entertainment can't be one-dimensional. It can't be always hard-edged, um, hard-ass, you know, uh, action game. It's got to it's gotta blend some humor. It's got to create pauses in the entertainment environment. It's got to entertain on many, 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 many different levels. And, and so I was just learning that at the time. And from that perspective, I think Johnny is far from my most polished there are a couple of things in Johnny that I love. I love the keep all the plates in the air spinning game at the very, the wizard mode at the very top of the game called Power Down, which is, I think, one of the coolest, you know, to this day, one of the coolest modes in pinball. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of the, you know, a lot, a lot of pinball guys hate me for it, but <laughs> the reality is that it, that it is incredibly entertaining and, when played well, it, it can be a it lot of fun. It pays off. Well, maybe so, in that respect, you know, not wanting to design pinball, that, that sort of can help you as well, because now you need to make something that you want to play, not being completely enamored and starstruck by just working on pins. Yeah, that, I mean, you know, and, and I, think a lot, you. I think my games, my next game, I continue to beat my head against the wall to create unique and different products. And mm-hmm. my next game, NBA Fast Break, is, is a unique and different pinball machine as pinball machines go it is a pinball machine that has polarized the audience you know it's like there are i never ever hear that nba fast break is okay i only ever hear (laughs) that people love it or people hate it and so you know i was a basketball fan we had just had a layoff the first wave of layoffs that hit the williams pinball engineering group so it was the beginning of the saga that would play out four years later with uh, the the advent of Pinball 2000, right? But we had just had the very first cracks in the foundation had occurred right at that particular moment in time. The company, uh, from a leadership perspective, was a little lost, and they kept asking for different things. So when I finished Johnny, I actually worked on a game called Armed and Dangerous, which never saw the light of day, other than the fact that the, I think a lot of pinball people know about it uh, because I sold off the Whitewoods. And it, what it was, it was a three-dimensional version of Steve's old hyperball game. Right. Used these nylon balls, and I had these tanks all over a, um, a big rocky landscape, and I had a big rock in, in the back that looked like uh, a skull, you know, kind of like the homage to Skull Island kind of thing. And mm-hmm. he would rotate from the big rock face to become a mechanical robot face. And that particular device, by the way, which no one has tied this together, but I I came up with that notion back then. I thought it was a valid notion, the notion of multiple reveals as you progress through the pinball game. And I just executed it with the Joker in 
in Batman, and no one has actually made that connection. But that's really the Joker and Batman, the multiple reels in Batman, came to me when I was working on Armed and Dangerous, way back between, you know, uh, subsequent to Johnny Mnemonic. So I was working on this game, again with my crew, and I, I missed the layoff by the skin of my teeth. I found out later that my name was on and off the layoff list, and I think that by that time, Lawler and Ritchie collectively probably saved my ass and kept my name off that list because I didn't have a lot of friends elsewhere. Mm. And they just had this layoff. I'm working on this thing. The day after the layoff, Neil Castro comes to see me and he says, you know what, this thing might, you know, might have legs. I don't know. It's kind of interesting, but we really don't know what to do with this. It's not a pinball machine. It kind of looks like a pinball machine, but it's a 3D gun game, uh, you know, with physical balls flying through the air, etc. I can't predict what this is going to do. But if you do, a, if you do a pinball machine, at the very least, I know I can sell 1,500 of those things, and I need to count on that number. So I need you for you to like switch and get into a pinball machine immediately. So I, we dropped Armed and Dangerous. It was a Friday. I thought about it over the weekend. On Monday morning, I came in. I called Roger Sharp. I said, get me the NBA license. We were having some luck across the street with the, in, on the video game side with the NBA license with uh, Mark, uh, Mark Trammell's uh, NBA Jam game. And so I thought, hey, you know what? A pinball machine with an NBA license won't be the worst thing in the world. And I, on Monday, I met with my team, and I already had the, the concept of, so obviously, it's got to have a basket. I want to have some guys in front of it that can pass the ball between themselves mm. and I can make a shot on basket from a location and I'm going to have a defender that's, that's going to be driven by the machine that's going to work against you. I already had that all figured out. And I remember sitting down with Tom Copera and he goes, wait, how am I going to get this ball? You, you want to move this ball through the air? And I was like, no, 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 no. The ball's not going to move through the air. We're just going to like, kick it over from one hole to the next. He was like, oh, okay, yeah, we can do that. That was NBA Fast Break. Wow. And, and it, was, it was, I think one of my most controversial games just because it's I changed the scoring <laughs> everybody hated that <laughs> pinball machines don't score like this I know but it's a basketball game so you know why why am I, I'm going to make a basket and I'm going to get 100,000 points I, I, don't, I don't understand <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's amazing it's great stuff yeah uh, Revenge from Mars and uh, Pinball Magic um, Elvira. Oh yeah, great game, great game. Uh, those, those games were right in that time frame. They were going on around me, and the one thing those games taught me—I mean, the thing I learned from Brian Eddy, the the you know Attack from Mars designer—was mm -hmm. uh, the the fact that thematically you had to entertain on many fronts. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not something that Steve taught me. It's not something that Pat taught me because. Steve's games are very, very hard. You know, they're, they're just, you know, it's like he doesn't want to, his, his, his jokes, they have to be in theme. They have to be like kind of right there. Mm -hmm. and, and Pat's games are consistently kind of storytelling games. Mm -hmm. And so, and I was kind of in, you know, ether there, between, you know, sort of between. I, you know, Johnny was very hard, like a Steve game, very little humor. What humor there was, nobody got. You know, <laughs> Fast Break was completely, you know, Fast Break, you know, I've been accused of, yeah, he's a novelty game designer, that's why he designed NBA Fast Break. Mm. So, you know, when I started kind of getting a clue about the fact that the entertainment had to be a multidimensional, um, that's when I did Monster Bash. And what an amazing culmination of all those events that led up to that. What I consider a perfect pinball game. I love Monsters Bash. It is still my favorite pinball game. And I shudder to think that part of my life might have been ripped out by a pink slip. George, thank you for your time. We're way over. It's been an... Oh, I'm an, sorry. Oh, yep. it's, no, it's a great adventure. But I do have to ask you two quick things. Number one, Hawk Avenger. Any inspiration for that from the game that I have no idea what it was called, but it was a mechanical back in the 70s where you were a helicopter inside oh, yeah. of a glass case. Yeah, that's yeah, absolutely. Direct, direct inspiration. I mean, totally. First the person. only thing I did was make the targets more more advanced that's yeah. great that's you're the first person that i talked to that knows it not only knows of it but uh yeah. was inspired by it well it was a midway game so ah, you know, okay. amazing it was, a mid, it was a midway game before i worked at midway <laughs> that's great that's great yeah. and the second one is and this is the big one for me which could blow the whole thing or or uh push me over the edge environmental discitron anything you involved with that anything 
Yeah, I did. I did that. I did that. Um, you know, we were we were high on the on the success of Tron, and um, I pretty much had a blank checkbook. You know, so. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a game, and there's another game. You know, you can't maim that because what you had like a spinner knob that had three yeah. levels, and then and, and then your joystick. Now you designed that joystick, I think. Right? Yeah, okay. yeah. That, that joystick was really. Um, it's amazing. Conceptually, uh, I. I a Dave Nutting idea. It's just I, okay. I basically uh, made it, you know, made it real. But for me, I really am going to be bored if I'm not trying to give you something you haven't seen. Yeah. I, I don't want. I just have no interest in doing another of. I just sure. Uh, you know. That's great. That's great. What are you working on now? I'm doing consulting work for a ton of different things. So I, I'm wearing a lot of hats. Some gaming products stuff, like you know, like slot machine kind of things. Okay some coin-operated sort of peripheral kinds of things like, you know, photo booths and that kind of thing. Oh, right. um, some vending products like merchandisers and... Anything with, um, a, with a monkey that smokes a cigarette in it? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> or a little plastic dog? No. I love those. No, plastic dog free. Um, <laughs> okay. But, uh, um, yeah, all kinds of different things. I have uh, some toy things in the works and um, I'm still doing... Doing some um, video game art for you know one of the big guys. Uh, oh, good conceptual vehicle stuff because I'm good at that. Oh, great! Thank you so much to- for taking time out of your hectic schedule. I know you probably were watching the dog whisperer. You had to come on. No, it was me. Sorry. <laughs> the unmaimable George Gomez. All right, see you guys. Wow, is it possible to mark out for your own show? Wow, that guy was involved with some of the greatest things that i remember all throughout my interactions with video games and pinball considered the bad boy of pinball indeed hey if you like what you hear join us (laughs) i hope so join us each month at wetalkgames.com for our full show we can go anywhere from two hours to four hours sometimes because we are passionate about video games we love them plus don't forget about our weekly breakout bonus levels as well as written articles at wetalkgames.com check them out right on hey join us in two weeks for another interview starcade where we will bring you a mystery guest from our monthly episodic programs bye now bye